Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Uh, so like I said, this is a recap. We're looking at Hebrews 9. And he... Um, and as we go through this today, since we're not going to hit the application ourselves, it's a good opportunity, even as you hear the recap, to just start thinking about what, what changes does this mean? What might change in my life, or what might change in my relationship to God, or what might change in my relationship to others if I believed these things, or since I believe these things, depending on where you are. That, that as you begin to, to grasp the summary, as we begin to hear the recap and really mull over these things again, I want you to stop and kind of think to yourself, so what does that, where does that lead? And it'll probably lead to many of the places that the author tells us in chapter 10, he suspects it will lead. So let's go ahead and get started. This is a picture of the tabernacle, and the reason that's here is because chapter 9 begins with this phrase. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. So we've talked about how so much, and, and again we hit this as the main point last week, that what the author of Hebrews is showing us is that the first covenant was incomplete, and not because it was wrong or a mistake or poorly thought out, but because it was always and only intended to be a, a signpost to the new covenant. It was intended to be a direction or a map to lead us to Jesus. And so that's what he's been pointing out, that the, that the new covenant had its limitations. But he wants us to see that the new covenant had all these pointers in it, all these things that symbolized where we were really going. And so he's going to go back and he's going to mention some things, and he's going to, by his own admission, not go into detail about those things, but he is going to mention what those things are. And so we're just going to touch on a few of them. We're not going to break them down with really clearly, uh, with, with details either, in a sense, because the author doesn't. And the details we get to would be mostly speculative. And so we'll, we'll engage in just a tiny bit of speculation, but we're not going to go very deep or very far with any of that. So what we have here is this is a picture of the tabernacle. So you may have heard the, the phrase tabernacle before. The tabernacle is basically a, a big tent. Tabernacle literally means tent. And, it's, uh, and this is when the Israelites were wandering the desert and they lived in tents. And so in order to really be confident that no matter where they went, right, as they wandered as nomads, in order to, to know no matter where they went, they were the people of God and he was the center of who they were, God had them build this very large tent structure and this tabernacle in order that that would always be the center of their camp. In fact, he tells them when they camp, they should camp around it so it's always in the center. Um, and the various tribes would camp on various sides of the tabernacle like they were protecting it, but more like it was the center of who they were. Um, and this is what it looked like. It's about half of a football field uh, in width and length. It's a little bit less than that, but it's pretty close to that. So if that gives you an idea, American football um, field is what I'm talking about there. Um, and uh, so it's about half that size. And you can see that the tent, there's really a tent in the middle, and the rest of it is kind of a, a courtyard, and it's an open tent, right? There are, there are walls, there are these curtains around it um, that protect it. And so we've got these various areas, so you'll notice that the first thing is we have these, these curtains, this enclosure all the way around. It can only be entered from a certain spot over there. And the shadow can show you right there. <laughs> it can be entered from there. And then once you go in, you'll notice, if you can see it, you have all these tables, which are called slaughter tables. You have an altar. You have, a, a, um, you have this fiery pit here, which is an altar. And you have what's called a, a lava here, uh, which is 
of basically a wash basin or a wash tub. And so what's happening here in this courtyard is that everything here is about sacrifice. It's about atonement for sins through sacrifice. And so you have all of these tables where sacrifices are made. You have all of it. You have this altar. And you have this wash basin where the priests are to wash their hands and their feet before they even think about going into the tent, all right? Or what you could refer to as the temple in some ways. Now, why the curtain enclosure in the first place? Well, because this moves progressively from from accessible to less accessible. As we've talked about, the idea of holy is kind of this otherness. And there needs to be, there, God really wanted to encourage this respect and reverence for God by making, you know, kind of causing some distance. And so the first part is this courtyard here. You can't enter that unless you're an Israelite or a non-Israelite who's really willing to accept God as your God. And you do that by coming in and making sacrifices. So in that sense, anyone's welcome. But it's really, in general, restricted to the Israelites. But from there, you go into the holies, right, the, the, um, the, the holy place, which is where the tent is. And when you head into there, that's only the priests can go in there. Now, all the priests can go in there, but only the priests. And the priests go in there, and there are certain items inside there that they can deal with. So you've got the outside where everybody is. You've got this courtyard where you can go if you're going to do sacrifices. Israelites are welcome, non-Israelites only if you're going to do sacrifices. And this is where you go to make atonement. And then you go into the tent, and once you go into the tent, that's only where only the priests can go. And so that's kind of the picture where we are right now. We're going to move inside the tent. So this is inside that first holy place, and this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, in its first room, referring to the tabernacle, the tent, were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. So we know, and again, there was a pattern given by God, blueprints given to Moses, this is how it's laid out. The temple, which they built later, is more permanent, but it's the same basic outline. And so we've got a number of really specific items. One is the menorah lampstand, right? Or what we think of as the menorah, but it's this lampstand. It says in the first room of the lampstand. So the lampstand is described as carved, as, as made all of one piece. That's not necessarily obvious in the way we see menorahs, and it's a little... Tricky to even figure out exactly what that looks like, but this is what tradition tells us it looks like. And it's got seven candles, okay? And so you've got these seven candles, and they're lit by oil, and they're in this golden lampstand. <clears throat> and what's interesting is that a lot of the holy place, too, was gilded with, with gold, right? So even though this is a tent, there's a lot of, of um, gold laid over the walls themselves. And specifically, once you get to the temple, then it really is. And I think part of what the idea is that this is the light for the room is these seven candles. But if the whole room was gold, as it particularly is in the temple, then the whole thing would kind of shine, right? The whole thing would reflect that. And so these, these are the light. This is supposed to be like an eternal flame. They're supposed to keep this lit all the time. One of the priest's jobs is to keep that can those candles always lit, to always keep them lit. And so... Uh, I'm supposed to say lit all the time. Why does it have to do with the New Covenant, really? So again, if these are all symbols and signposts, each of these things in some way probably tell us something about Jesus or about God or about heaven. We don't know exactly, but there's a lot of references that are made throughout Scripture to oil, to flame, the whole, to being the Holy Spirit. So there certainly could be some reflection here of this being a, a, a sort of a shadow of how the Holy Spirit is going to be in all of us. That's certainly possible. There's even a weird verse which talks about the sevenfold nature of the Spirit. There's been a lot of strange theologies people have tried to create it out of that, given that's one verse. Um, and I don't think we need to go there, but there may be some connection to that and this idea of these seven candles. 
Also, Jesus himself, of course, called himself the light of the world. So there's, there's all sorts of references to light and to the gospel being light and lighting everything. And so as we enter the holy place, this is what lights up the holy place. We also have what's called the table of showbread. So that, that's what it says over there. That's that little table. And this is where they used to have uh, bread, literal bread, would be on this table. And it was one for each of the 12 tribes. You would have a loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes. So they had 12 pieces of bread. And again, the priests had a couple jobs here. One was to make sure that that was stocked with fresh bread, but the other was to eat the bread. So in fact, actually the showbread was a, a fellowship bread. It was something that they ate in the presence of God with God. So they enter into the holies and they eat the bread, and it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a picture of fellowship. So a couple of things there. Jesus calls himself the bread. He says, I am the bread of life. That, that certainly could be, um, again, the reflection that he is our nourishment. He is everything that we need, um, that, that, that he's what's provided there in that holy place. Um, but also the fellowship, right? The priest comes in here to fellowship with God, to meet with God. That's why he comes into the holy place. The priests do. They do. And then we have the altar of incense. And the altar of incense is pretty clearly told to us several times is the reflection of the prayers of the saints. That as they would burn the incense, as the priest would burn the incense, it would go up to God, and it would be like the prayers of, God, of, of the people which are pleasing to God. And that seems to be a fair representation of still what's happening. So my, my goal tonight is not to give you sort of specific ideas of what all these symbols mean, but to show you that in general, a lot of these things just do point to what we see in the gospel. Fellowship with God, connection with God, enlightenment and light of the world, um, and our prayers to God, going up to him and being pleasing to him. We see that. But just to remind you kind of how things go from here, he goes on, the author of Hebrews says, behind the second curtain... So this is where here's the lampstand and the bread and the, and the incense. And then you've got that second curtain. We talked about that a lot a few weeks ago, this veil, which was torn when Jesus died on the cross, which, which all the priests can go in here, but only the high priest once a year ever opens that curtain. That curtain stays closed, except once a year when the high priest goes in there to meet with God and to make atonement for the sins of all people. And this is what the author of Hebrews says, Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and a gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. So here's what we have. When, when you go in there, you have what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, Ark just means box. And Covenant is referring to the law, because that box contains the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant in it. That's not all that's in there. Moses, I mean, the author of Hebrews reminds us, and Moses had already pointed this out, that there's two other things in that ark, and one of them is a jar of manna. Now, manna is what the Israelites lived on when they wandered in the wilderness. There wasn't enough food, and so God provided this magic, this miraculous food that, that came with the dew of the earth every day, and then basically spoiled by the end of the day, and it was kind of a sweet bread, is what we think. And there's all sorts of, of possible explanations for what this actually was. But the bottom line is, even if God used sort of natural processes, it was a miracle of God that it was provided to them every day, and it spoiled every night. They had to trust him every day for the new provision. They, didn't, they, they had to know it would be there for them again, that they didn't have to recreate it or save it up. In fact, they couldn't save it up. It would spoil, which is interesting because then at one point Moses says, take an omar, take a little bit of this manna and put it in a jar, and that jar is going to go in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder to us of God's provision. So even though it's spoiled every day, this one little bit didn't apparently spoil uh, and stayed in that jar in that ark. 
Second thing that's in there is Aaron's staff that budded. So, so what happened is there was this rebellion by the Israelites against the priesthood, against the leaders that God had instituted specifically. And God wanted Aaron to be the first high priest. So it was important that people respect that was God's choice. So they were like, well, who says you get to lead? Why don't we get to lead? So God said, I'm going to show them that it's me, that I'm providing this priesthood. And so what he did is he had them get one staff for each of the 12 tribes, and he had everybody write a name of the tribe on each of the staffs. But when he got to the tribe of the Levites, he had Aaron write his own name on that. Because again, he wanted to really endorse Aaron specifically. And so then they leave the staffs overnight. And what happens is the next day, they discover that Aaron's staff has not only budded, but it's blossomed and produced almonds. So it's kind of this weird, definitely miraculous. This wasn't planted anywhere. It's just actually born fruit. And so in this way, he was showing them, I have instituted the priesthood. I have instituted the leaders for your protection. And so that went into the Ark of the Covenant as well. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments are the third thing, which are in the Ark, the Covenant, the Law of God. And so we have these three things, which are really all very central to the Old Covenant, right? The manna, which talks about God's provision as he brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, where that covenant really begins. We talk about the... The, 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 the staff where God institutes the priesthood, and then we have, of course, the law itself. And so these are all things that are very much protected, um, that, that reflect the covenant. And so these are all inside this box. And when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, this box is there. And on top of that box, we have these golden cherubims. Now, it's hard to get a good picture of, but the truth is we don't know for sure what these golden cherubims looked like. What we do know is they do not look like cute little Cupid babies. Um, in scripture, cherubim are described and they're fearsome creatures. They have different, different heads, uh, in some cases, with different animals. Um, and they have multiple eyes, and they have multiple feathers. Um, and, and they're just, they're fearsome. And they protect this ark. They protect the covenant, right? They're sort of, again, keeping that distance for the high priest from God. And so they sit up there over the ark, and then the, the, ark, the atonement cover is the lid that goes on the ark. And then sometimes that's called the mercy seat. And this is where the high priest was supposed to go to meet with God. And so you, you pass through the, the outer court, the outer court's there where the sacrifices are. And you have to sacrifice and cleanse yourself before you can get into the holy place. Then you go to the holy place where we have the light and the bread and the prayers and the incense. And then from there, you, only one priest once a year passes into the most holy place where we have these amazing relics of the covenant. And we have the ark itself, the mercy seat, the kind of the throne of God in a sense. And so this is what he's reminding us, that this is what we have. But he says this, we cannot discuss these things in detail now. <laughs> so we discussed them in a little bit of detail, but only because the things that we've discussed, the Hebrews would have been very familiar with already, and I just wanted to at least give you something to picture. But he's not going to go in point by point about how all these are relevant, but he is going to just make a very clear point about all of them. And this is what he wants to say, is that essentially... The bottom line is that Jesus is all these things for us that we've seen. He is our sacrifice. He is our atonement. He is our fellowship. He is our new covenant. He is our protection. He is our authority. He is our priesthood. He is our provision. He is that thing provided by God. And he is God himself. He is all these things at once. And therefore, why do we need all of these symbols anymore, right? Well, let's see him say that. I just gave you a little summary, but that's what he's going to say. He says, when everything had been arranged like this, right, when they put everything the way they were supposed to, where they were supposed to put it, built it, and put everything as God had designed it, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So they entered regularly into here. 
but only the high priest entered the inner room, and inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The author of Hebrews is saying the fact that they kept having to do this and that only the high priest was allowed in once a year was a way of reminding all the people that they were not allowed into the most holy place. <laughs> that that the, the access to God was really still hidden, right? We had all these symbols, but everybody knew they were just symbols. And they symbolized something much more mysterious, something, something much more important. That's what he's saying that really the Israelites knew this. And he's reminding the Hebrews, you knew this. You never really thought that the sacrifice of animals was what got you into God. There's something much bigger going on here, but the fact that we kept having to do it this way was part of the proof, was part of the way that God kept reminding us that the access to God was a mystery. The, the entrance back to God was hidden from us. And that's what he says. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper, right? They didn't actually make you holy. And they didn't even really clear your conscience, right? You, you, you couldn't be, and you knew it. It just kept reminding you that you couldn't get to God. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He died on the cross, and, and, and even the, the way the New Testament talks about what happened during those three days is unclear to us. We sometimes try to make theologies about where he was for those three days. Was he in hell? Was he, was he in the grave? Was he in heaven with the Father? There's a lot of, uh, frankly, a lack of clarity. It's kind of a mystery, but the way the author of Hebrews says it is he's passing through the real tabernacle, right? He's going from earth into heaven. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkle on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. Dog wants to go in and see Joshua. Let's see. Let me read that again. He did not enter by the means of blood and goats and calves, right? So Jesus entered in. But he was going in the real tabernacle, so he didn't go in the same way the priests do. He didn't use the wash basin, and he didn't use the, the, the sacrifice of goats and cows. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The point is this. There's still a lot of mystery to it, right? He's going to get into that in a second. There's still a lot of mystery about the blood, right? Why, why is death necessary? Why is the blood necessary? We get to that in chapter 10 a little bit. But it never really gets explained. We're just told that it is somehow necessary. So why is it that the blood of Jesus, of, of, that God's death as a human being, that that paves the way for us? It's not really clear. We come up with understandings and theories and theologies and try to explain why that is, but we don't know for sure. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us is what we do know is that what we saw in the Old Testament certainly was never doing it. And yet we really honored that with so much reverence. How much more then should we honor the sacrifice of God himself, right? If we honor the sacrifice of a lamb, 
who really has no choice. How much more do we honor the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who willingly gives his life on our behalf? And how much more impactful is it? And that's his point, that, that it's still a mystery. And the purpose for all these sacrifices wasn't because there was a rule that said God had to do these sacrifices. The purpose of these sacrifices is because for some reason the gospel was coming. And the death of Jesus was necessary. And because it was necessary, God had to find a way to help us understand the necessity of it. So he gave us these pictures, these shadows, which in and of themselves are mystery. But how much more is this mystery? The point is, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Rather than an inheritance over and over and over that keeps being destroyed, this is something that lasts forever. It's an eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So one thing that Paul tells us a lot in other passages is that the first covenant not only was shadows and signposts, but the first covenant in its job as shadows and signposts also revealed to us and even held us accountable to the fact that we were unable to even meet the, re the first covenant. Right? Our continued breaking of it, it, it sort of increased the recognition of our sin. And because of that, now Christ has died to free us from that. Somehow his death was a ransom, a payment, a redemption that frees us from our bondage to sin, to the covenant, and to the devil. He then goes on this. He says, in case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. You don't get the inheritance until the person's dead. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was not, was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Why is this, right? Why, why was blood so important to them? Maybe there's something culturally they understood we don't, but regardless of whether there is, what the author is saying is that all that cleansing of blood in the Old Testament, it isn't what made the gospel necessary. It isn't like, oh, Jesus saw that and said, well, I guess now I'll have to die so I can match that. Well, it's the other way around. All of that was necessary as a picture to us because without the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why is that so? I don't know. I don't know that I know entirely. There is something about the gospel which is still... A mystery to us. It's locked into the very center of the universe and the very center of God, but we don't always understand it. Now, I suspect it doesn't make complete sense to us because it's a shadow, even that. Our understanding of the gospel is the shadow of the more substantive truth that's at the center of the universe, that, 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 of who Jesus is and how he holds the universe together. But he goes on. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. So these copies, right? These copies of the heavenly things had to be purified. But the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. Again, it's just a comparison and contrast. How much greater is the gospel? For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he ever enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with the sin by sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
This is the message which is worth repeating over and over, and the author, so the author of Hebrews does. That what, when we look at the gospel, what we're looking at is the final culmination, the final realization of everything that the old covenant promised us, but really couldn't keep. It only promised it to us because it was leading us to the destination of the fulfillment of that promise. The covenant could not keep its own promise, but Jesus could. And that was to make us actually holy. And to cleanse us, actually cleanse us. And to make us righteous and fit for heaven. So that we can enter heaven and be with Jesus. So that when we see him, we will see that we are like him. And Jesus only had to do that once. Because he's the perfect high priest. He didn't have to make that sacrifice over and over and over. He only had to make it once. And he made it at the perfect time, whatever that means. But he did it to take away the sins of many. He didn't have to take away his own sins. And so while our lives, our mortality is such that we're destined to die, and then we face judgment, Christ's death covers all of that judgment, right? As we accept that, as we embrace that, what he did covers that. And the, the message is so important that we need to repeat over and over and over, because even to this day, as believers of the New Covenant, we are often confused about this is that there is nothing that we need to add. In fact, there is nothing that we can add to the work of Christ. That what he's done at the cross is what has accomplished it for us. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, because it always impresses me that the, the two things that happen at the crucifixion, one is the very last words of Jesus. One of the very last words is that he says, it is finished. And I think he may be talking about his own agony, but I don't think he's only talking about his own agony. I think he's talking about that the entire sacrifice is finished. That what he's come to do is done. His mission is accomplished. And now, there's nothing for us to add. When we come along and we say, well, I need to be more sorrowful, or I need to, I need to find a way to work my way back into this, or I need to confess a certain way, or I need to perform a certain thing, or I need to follow certain works and laws... When we do any of these things in any of our churches, when any of our churches become a matter of religion which seeks to add to what Jesus has done to make us somehow more acceptable before God, we are denying, we are arguing with Jesus when he says at the cross, it is finished. Because it's finished. And the other thing I think about is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's there, and in his humanity he says, God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. If we can avoid this death thing, let's do that. But not my will, but yours. And the conclusion is, there is no other way, right? If there was something you could do that would have brought you salvation, Jesus would not have gone through with it. Why should he? But he did it because it was the only way. And again, when we think that our churches and our religions, that their job is to add anything to the accomplished work of Christ, then we're missing the point. And the author of Hebrews makes this so strongly that that's why when he gets to chapter 10, one of the things he's going to have to tell us is that there's still a purpose to church. Because you should be at this point wondering what it is. Because it's not to make you more holy. And it's not to make you more righteous. And it's not to make you more acceptable to God. Your church activities do not earn you spiritual brownie points with God. They do not get you a better place at the banquet table. They do not earn you more righteousness or more holiness. So we're not going to talk tonight about what the purpose of church is. We're going to save that for chapter 10. But I want to ask you this. If you believed that Jesus had already bought your righteousness, 
that he had ransomed by his death and rescued you from slavery to sin, to flesh, to death. If he had freed you from the chains of mortality and freed you from the chains of, of obsession and compulsion and, and, and your flesh, if you believed he had freed you from your need to make God love you more, if you really believed that you didn't have to do anything to make God approve of you, but that it had been done at the cross, if you believed there was now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, if you believed that there was now no wrath for those in Christ Jesus, if you believed that we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence, what would that change in your life? What would you stop doing? Or what would you start doing if you really believed these things? If it was clear to you that all the rituals and all the ceremonies are simply signposts to Jesus, and Jesus is the accomplishment of everything we need. He is our fellowship with God, and He is our light, and He is our ability to pray and commune with God. And he is our holiness, and he is our covenant, and he is our cleanliness. What would it change? Because it's a big enough point, it should. So that's what I want you to think about between now and next week. We're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thank you for hanging out with me. Um, most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.